Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. As we begin looking at these events that are leading up to what has been called and is called Holy Week, as we think about the last days of our Lord on this earth. You know, the truth of the matter is, the most significant question that can be asked and answered during this week is who is Jesus? And what does he mean in your life? Who is he in your life? Not just what does he mean to you, that's such a shallow question, but who is he? And what is he in your life on a consistent and a daily basis? Who is Jesus? A lot of people try to answer that question, uh, and a lot of people miss it terribly. In this morning's Commonwealth Journal, there's an article about somewhat who is Jesus. Kind of an interesting statement. I want to read part of it. I'm not going to attribute it to anyone, but you'll be able to run to get your paper and can check it later. But this particular person has written a book, a forthcoming book, that is uh, entitled, Jesus Was a Shakapat Guru. And she, this person goes on to explain that a Shakapat Guru is an interfaith way of saying that Jesus the Christ was, was and is a master of guiding the Holy Spirit, known by other names such as Maha Kunadani, uh, in the, in, uh, oh, excuse me, I get the whole name, Maha Kunadande Shataki in the Hindu tradition, and as wind horse in certain sects of Buddhism. No, he's not. I'm sorry. That's not who Jesus is. It's not who he ever claimed to be. That's not who he ever said that he was. He said a lot of things about who he was, but he never said he was the um, bum, 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 shakapat guru. Never said that. Never intended to say that. Never intended for you to think that's who he is. He had one thing, one person, one idea in mind when he told us who he is, who he was, who he is, and friends, who he ever more will be. And that makes all the difference in the world. That you understand who he is. And that we're passionate about him. I, I read that passage out of, out of Psalm this morning. And, and, I, uh, and I, I prayed that prayer about wanting more panting after him. More desire for him. And, and I mean that with all my heart. Not only for us as a church, but also for me as an individual. That we would know that and pursue that and desire that above everything else in life. You know, the problem a lot of times is that we can just kind of take Jesus for granted. And that's a real problem. We can come to church and we can be passionate about preaching, about teaching, about coming to church, about our church, about singing, and all multitudes of other things. But the real question is, are we passionate about Jesus? Are we passionate about who he is, what he has done? what he wants to do in our lives. We can all be guilty of taking him for granted. But the most important question you can answer this morning, not to me, not to the person sitting next to you, but the most important question that you can answer for yourself and to yourself is simply this, do I love and desire Jesus Christ? Do I love him and desire him more than anything else that this world has to offer? Or am I just kind of caught up in everything the world offers and, and sort of as an aside, I add Jesus on and that's all well and good, we think. 
nothing could be worse, nothing could be more disastrous, and nothing could be further from the truth. Hear the word of the Lord as we look, beginning in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 39. You'll notice in your order of worship, I put verse 39 FF. That means following verses. I was afraid if I put the full text I was going to use this morning, it would scare you to death, and you sit down and read your bulletin, and you'd run. Because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. In verse 39, Luke records this for us. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. You remember from John's gospel, we've talked about this. They've been sorrowful, they've been worried, they've been conflicted, they've been been sad because he's talked about this leaving them. Even though he's going to send another comforter, he's going to leave them. And they love him, and they depend on him, and they trust in him. And they've been very, and so they're so sorrowful. You've been that way, haven't you? You've you've had grief, you've had sorrow, and you just couldn't do anything but sleep. Well, that's what these disciples did. They, they fell asleep. Verse forty six says, and he said to them, "Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation." It's an important thing for them to be praying for themselves right now. That's an important thing for you and me to pray for. That we not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. Notice it doesn't say here yet that he has kissed him. He approached him with the intent of kissing him. But before he could even do that, Jesus said to him, But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Those who were around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we know from other accounts and other gospels that that was Peter. Peter, impetuous Peter, always at the, always at the ready to make a strong, bold statement. Not always following through, as we'll see here in a minute, but always ready to make a strong statement. So he reached out, and he struck at the high priest's servant, and he cut off his ear. I contend to you, he was not intending to cut off the poor guy's ear. He wanted to cut off his head. He just ducked, and he missed him, more than likely. That's just my opinion. Verse 51, and Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Came at night, 
You came hidden in darkness. You came with swords and shields. You came, to, you came as though I were some criminal. You're hiding in the darkness. We always hide in the darkness with our sin, don't we? Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl seeing him that as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too, and he denied it. Saying, woman, I do not know him. This is who just cut off a man's ear. Trying to fight for Jesus. Here's a man who's following, at least, where others are scattering and hiding, but yet in the moment of greatest stress. He said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean also or two. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Jesus had told him that would happen. And Peter had vehemently said, that will never happen. And now it happens. Who's right? The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him, and they were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And when the council, when it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. There's another book out by Bart Ehrman who says, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, that John made him that. Luke says that's exactly what he said. Yes, I am. I'm not a Shakopat guru. I'm the son of God. And they said, what further need do we have of his testimony? Of testimony, for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. There's more we'll look at in a minute partially, but I want you to, I want you to look at several things here. Several things are important for us to think about as we think about who is Jesus and what is this week all about. The first thing I want you to see from the passage we've just read, the part we just read, is I want you to see that Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control. He's not being led by anyone. He's not being forced by anyone. He is in complete control of the situation. In verse 39, he leads the way to the Mount of Olives, knowing what is going to be there to greet him. 
In verse 40, he prays and he invites his disciples to pray. He says, you know, I'm going to be praying, but you need to pray also that you won't be led into temptation. And so he leads them into the time of prayer there in the garden. In verse 48 in chapter 22, when, when Judas comes with all of these people, this multitude of people bearing torches and swords and shields, he takes the initiative with Judas. When Judas comes up to him to kiss him, he walks up to him, and, and Jesus says, Judas, have you come to betray me with a kiss? I mean, and he's taking the initiative there. Jesus is in complete control of this whole situation throughout this whole narrative. Indeed, the one who is about to be put on trial is actually controlling the trial. You'll see that in a minute. The one who's about to be stood up and charged with all sorts of things, some true, some untrue, some true and not a problem, some untrue and a major problem, but he is absolutely unmoved and resolute throughout this whole situation. It's important to see. Jesus is controlling it. In his silence, he's simply moving things along according to his purpose, not their purpose. You see, folks, you've got to understand, his purpose is not to escape this arrest. His purpose is not to get out of jail free. His purpose is always moving toward the cross. His purpose is to move all of the events now at the right time, at his hour, to come to the cross. And Luke presents Jesus as being under extreme pressure, but in the midst of all that extreme pressure, he remains absolutely in control and absolutely calm. Folks, this is God's sovereignty in action before the people. You know, usually, if you and I have an opportunity to control the situation, we control it for our benefit or for our family's benefit. But here is Jesus. Not self-centered, not thinking about what is best for himself, but thinking about his purpose and his cause. This is the most unself-centered act in all of history. It's the most unselfish act in all of history. Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, even maybe 99.9 times out of 100. When we make decisions, when we can control the situation, we make them based on what is best for us or those we love. Jesus was making a decision based what's best for those he loved in that for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior. But the truth of the matter is, it's not what's best for him physically at that moment. He refused to give in to that. Jesus is in complete control. Second thing you need to see here is that Jesus is innocent. He's absolutely innocent. In, in, in verse 66, when he comes before the council, you know, they, they bring all sorts of charges they want to bring to them. You know, when the, the council assemble and the people are watching, and the chief priests and the scribes, they, they led him to their chamber saying, listen, if you're the Christ, tell us. He said, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. You who are supposed to know the prophecy of the coming Messiah, you who are supposed to know who I really am, you won't answer it even if I ask you the question. So he stayed quiet until they said, are you the son of God? Are you the son of God then? And he said, yes, I am. There's no crime in telling who you are. 
He was completely innocent. Or if you look over in chapter 23 in verse 4, you know, Pilate, after having, after they bring him before Pilate and, and make the charge there that he says he's a king and, and forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar, none of which he did. He said, render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's, and says himself, makes himself out to be a king, the Christ. Pilate asked him, saying in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. I am. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He's completely innocent. Or in verse 14 through 16 of the same chapter, after Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers again, he said, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Even over in verse 41... As he's hanging on the cross already, and there's a, the, 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 the criminals are hanging on both sides. One of the criminals says, and now we are indeed suffering justly, for we receive what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. His innocence is presented by Luke as being complete and looked at from every dimension, from Herod who could find nothing wrong, we'll talk about Herod in a few minutes, from Pilate and even from this criminal that hung on the cross. Some look at that and say it's a total miscarriage of justice. Yes, it is, but it's far more than that. Because not only is he not guilty, not only is he innocent, he is perfectly innocent. Innocent in every way. One of my favorite movies is The Fugitive. Ever watch The Fugitive? A poor guy, his wife's killed by one-armed man, and he spends his lifetime, it seems like, trying to find the one-armed man. He was convicted of murder, but he got to escape, and then he searches for the one-armed man while Gerard is on his trail the whole time trying to find him. That was a miscarriage of justice. He was falsely accused of something that someone else did. Same was true in the Shawshank Redemption and other movies. It's a great theme for movies and books. People love it. But this is no mere miscarriage of justice this is an atrocity this is the one who is the righteous one the perfect one the pure one the one who is the son of god the one who is god incarnate the one who deserved nothing of this but went to it freely for you and me he's in complete control and he's perfectly innocent third thing i want you to see is that through all of this jesus trusts the father we see it in the garden. When he prays there in the garden, what sounds like trying to get out of it, he said, Lord, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But his words are telling in verse 42, but not my will, but your will be done. It's not about what I want, Father. It's about what your perfect will is to redeem a people for yourself. And even as hanging on the cross in verse 46 of chapter 23, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit quoting the psalm that uh, was read during our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 31. I commit my spirit into your hands. I trust you. His friends are betraying him. They're falling away. 
Many of the disciples are hiding. Peter's saying, I don't know him. His friends are literally falling apart, and his enemies are determined to destroy him. Jesus is surrounded by weak people, but he remains strong. Peter falls apart by saying, I don't know him. Jesus remains strong. You see, Peter's like us, or we're like Peter. Peter had great intentions, dare I say, made great resolutions. I will follow you to the death. If they get you, Jesus, they got to go through me first. I'll cut off the high priest's servant ear. I'll do whatever it takes to keep them from getting you. His resolution, his commitment, his intentions were strong, but he just can't live up to them in his own strength. That's where you and I are. We have great intentions. We have great resolutions. But apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that Jesus has sent, apart from him indwelling our life and empowering us and strengthening us, we will be just like Peter. Someone will say, oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, no, I'm not really. I just go to church every now and then, you know. Well, tell me about who Jesus is. Well, you know, he's, 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 I don't know. I can't really answer that question. Just like Peter, we deny him. Fourth thing you see here is Jesus is exposing to us, to those around him and to us, our own self-centeredness. It really is. You know, in our self-centeredness, we kind of take Jesus for granted. We take his grace for granted. We just kind of don't think a lot about it. Oh, yes, I, I made a professional faith 22 years ago. Walked an aisle, baptized, signed the card, prayed the prayer, did all, the, all those things question is not really what did you do 22 years ago it's what's going on in your life today is it all about you or is it all about Christ are you self-centered in the sense that you just don't spend enough time thinking about the power the prayer uh, the beauty the majesty of Jesus you don't you don't spend time meditating on his attributes and on his glory and so consequently you spend time meditating on how great you are I'm not sure anyone captures that any better, that whole complex issue of the beauty of Jesus, any better than Jonathan Edwards did. In his sermon that he entitled, The Excellency of Christ, I feel a whole lot better quoting Jonathan Edwards than I do the newspaper this morning. Preached in 1734. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but I want you to hear it. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said about the excellency of Christ. And here is not only infinite strength and infinite worthiness that is in Christ, but infinite condescension and love and mercy as great as power and dignity. So, so if you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God will never have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that he is either unwilling or unable to help you. That is, if you see your sin and see your inadequacy, don't be afraid to go to Christ. Here is a strong foundation and an an inexhaustible treasure. Here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts you, 
you need not fear that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defense. I like that picture, a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, if you come, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all who come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It's true he has awful majesty, mighty, thundering majesty. He is a great God, infinitely high above you, but there, is all, but there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is a man as well as God. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will be graciously and meekly received by him. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the proper man who is also God. The only innocent one, the one who trusts God, the sovereign God in the flesh, how can we fail to run to him? How could we ever take him for granted? End quote. The beauty, the majesty, the glory of Christ who, who is one who shows us our self-centeredness, but who says, I am, the, I am the cure for that self-centeredness. Come to me. Come to me. You see, we have Jesus here surrounded by ordinary people, by weak people, by evil people, by self-centered people. And against this backdrop, Jesus shines brightly shines brightly. Here you have him like a, a diamond. Have you ever gone to buy a diamond in a jewelry store? The, the jeweler doesn't lay it in your hand, which is kind of white and pasty, and say, now look how beautiful that diamond is. What does he do? He lays it on a piece of black felt type material. Black, as, as black as black can be. Because against that dark background, the brilliance and the beauty of the diamond shines forth. And that's the way it is this. You see Jesus here surrounded by multitudes of weak and self-centered and evil people. And against that backdrop, Jesus shines brightly. He goes to Pilate. Pilate's motives are obviously politically self-centered. He's scared to death of what the people are going to do or say about him. And he, he says, I know this man is innocent. He, he later will wash his hands and say, I wash my hands of this man's blood. I, he's innocent. I want to have no part of it. But yet he continues to let him go down the road toward Calvary, which Jesus is engineering, by the way. But nonetheless, in Pilate, we see a absolute political, self-centered person. I could... We've got a lot of pilots around us today, don't we? Both in political office and not in political office. Then you got Herod. I love Herod. In chapter, chapter 23, when Jesus goes before Herod in chapter 8, it says, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Seems strange, doesn't it? Jesus has been called a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker and one who can stir up the crowds, but... Herod was glad when he came because he had wanted to see him for a long time. 
because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Pilate was acting out of political self-interest and self-centeredness. Now Herod comes along, he wants a magic show. He wants him to do some tricks. I'm I'm not a big fan. When I was in college, a musical came out, a rock opera came out called Jesus Christ Superstar. I went and saw it as a college student, and I felt the absolute blasphemy flowing from it. And I didn't like Herod's song. But you know, if you look at what he's saying here, he wanted him to do a sign. He he wanted to to see something wrong here. He wanted to find something that he could do. Herod's song is not that far off base in Jesus Christ Superstar. It's, it's, it's very irreverent. I got a feeling Herod was kind of irreverent, been irreverent. He says, Jesus, I'm overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place. I'm not going to sing it for you. Healing cripples, raising the dead, and now I understand you're God. At least that's what you've said. So you are the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need to do. And I'll know it's all true. Come on, king of the Jews. Jesus, you just won't believe the hit you've made around here. You're all we talk about, the wonder of the year. Oh, what a pity if it's all a lie. Still, I'm sure you can rock the cynics if you try. So if you are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. If you'll do that for me, then I'll let you go free. Come on, king of the Jews. I only ask things I'd ask of any superstar. What is it that you have got that puts you where you are? And he goes on with more of that. That's what, that's what Herod did he said he he wanted to see him perform a sign he was glad to see him he's excited he was there and then he questioned him at length and jesus said nothing the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently and herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him that's what that does and mocking him dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. The robe was another form of mocking. It was saying, you say you're king of the Jews, we're going to dress you like a king. And they did. So now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, but before that they had been enemies. We're all like Pilate and Herod. Terribly self-centered. We, we want to be entertained like Herod did. We, we want to have our own uh, agendas accomplished like Pilate did. I mean, We're all terribly self-centered, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Scripture teaches Jesus died for us. That's the fifth thing. He died for us. Many of the bystanders around the cross were absolutely oblivious. They had no idea what was going on. The crowds had no idea who was standing in front of them. A miracle worker, a prophet, a preacher, an itinerant, yeah, they knew all that, but... But here, they did not realize who he really was. These are real people watching real theology being worked out before them. And they were missing it. Some of you no doubt saw the movie or read the book, The Hunger Games. I didn't. I just know what I read about it. 
But understand in that story, there's one girl, one of the, one of the characters who takes the place of her sister. So that her sister won't face death, and her sister can live. And so she, she takes the sister's place, and, and that's presented kind of as an admirable act. And, and it is. I mean, quite honestly, it is. But it's very understandable. You might would do that for a sister or a brother. You might would do that for a husband or a wife or especially a child. You might would say, I'll take their place that they might live. I love them. They're that important to me. But let me tell you something. The Hunger Games is no picture of Jesus. The, the girl taking the place of her sister is no picture of what Christ did because here we have Jesus who takes the place of those who hate him, those who abuse him, those who taunt him, those who make fun of him, those who spit upon him, those who lie about him. All of those fit in this area and Jesus takes their place. I dare say anyone who do that to you, you wouldn't take their place. Jesus died for us. Finally, I want you to see how he was recognized. How he was recognized. He said he was the son of God. Yes, I am in 22 verse 70. He, he said when he went before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. But he was recognized by Many. I think my favorite one that was recognized by was the one hanging on the cross. You know, we've, we've in era said, call those two guys hanging on the cross thieves. They weren't thieves. Thieves weren't crucified. Thieves were, may have had their hands cut off. They may have had their eyes gouged out. They may have had any number of things done to them as punishment. But thieves weren't crucified. This, these hanging on the cross were more like Barabbas was. They were terrorists. To use our own vernacular today. There were people trying to overthrow the government. They were murderers. They were killing people to try to bring about their own political agenda. And those were the ones who were hung there on either side of Jesus. This was a terrorist who hung there. And, and in that verse, he says, listen, you know, we're suffering justly for we've received what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying it, Jesus said, remember, uh, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise today. He was recognized by a terrorist, by a hardened, evil criminal who said, I'm getting what I deserve, but he didn't deserve any of this. Not only that, he was recognized by the universe got dark in the middle of the day the the whole it was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour a terrorist recognized him and now jesus was being recognized and acknowledged by the very universe that he created i love how daryl bach puts it that in the middle of the day the heavens begin to comment everything goes dark the earth ships a curtain the curtain in the temple rips and the cosmos itself recognizes Jesus and the implications of his death. Dying for our sins. Dying in our place. And then finally, not only a terrorist, not only the creation or the universe itself, 
But after he uses the words from Psalm 31.5 that Scott read earlier, when he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion, a Gentile, a Roman soldier, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. Can you imagine that? This Roman pagan, this Roman Gentile, he began praising God when he saw that, that the thief said what he said and when he saw the darkness come over the earth and the creation, the, the universe cry out, this is who he says he is through the darkness. The Gentile begins praising God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. Mark and Matthew Record for us the centurion praising God and saying, certainly this was the Son of God. Both carry the weight of what's happening here. Recognizing who Jesus is. So that brings us back to where I began. The most important question this morning that you can answer, whether you've been in church all your life or whether you wandered in here for the first time today, the most important question you must answer is who is this man? Who is Jesus? Is he a uh, Shaktapat guru guiding the Holy Spirit who's Wind horse? Or is he the Son of God? Is he as Peter said when, when, P, when Jesus took, looked at the disciples in Caesarea Philippi and said, Tell me, who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're, 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 you know, you're Jeremiah or Isaiah, one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. Probably some of them were even saying you were a Shaktapat guru. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I want you to know something. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. In other words, your brain not that big. You didn't figure that out on your own. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. So I ask you this morning, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? You say, Bill, does it really matter who I say he is? Absolutely. It's, it's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between light and darkness. It's not a matter of, oh, well, all roads lead to God. They do all lead to God. The only problem is only one road leads to life in God. All the others lead to God for judgment and eternal, eternal damnation. Only one road leads to life. That's Jesus. I am the way, way is path, road. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to God. No man comes to the Father. But by me. Do you know him? I mean, this is Easter week. This is Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. I know they, uh, I guess I should have preached about coming in. Hosanna, Hosanna, praise be the King. But I want you to see it's the death on this coming, the end of this week. It sets the stage for everything. The cross was where he was headed. The cross was where his focus was. And the cross must be our focus. And the one hanging on the cross, who died there looking like a criminal, looking like a terrorist, taking upon himself the sin of mankind that he knew nothing of. He was innocent, he was perfect, he was pure, he was holy. Taking my sin, taking your sin, so who do you say he is? Let's pray.